is from the Gospel according to St. Matthew, the 23rd chapter, verses 23 and 24. And our subject, mercy. Matthew 23, verses 23 and 24. and Pharisees, hypocrites. For ye pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin, and have omitted the weightier matters of the law, judgment, mercy, and faith. These ought ye have done, and not to leave the other undone. Ye blind guides which strain at a gnat and swallow a camel. These words are one of our Lord's strongest indictments of the religious leaders of his day. With very sharp and bitter language, he calls them hypocrites, blind guides, and he speaks of them as straining at a gnat and swallowing a camel. Now, as he describes their religious practice, it's very interesting to see what he points to that they have done and says they ought to have done it. That is to tie. Moreover, he characterizes this as the easy aspect of the law. This is a very significant fact. Today we tend to think of the tithe as something difficult. But very plainly, not only is tithing not condemned, but it is separated from the other matters of the law as an easier duty. The more weighty the difficult matters are justice, mercy, and faith. These words, therefore, should make us pause. Our feeling today, of course, is very much the reverse than that of our Lord. We tend to feel that justice, mercy, and faith are very simple matters, and tithing is difficult. The reason for this is that we regard, we regard justice, mercy, and faith as an emotional position. We feel it is sufficient to say that we believe in these things and therefore we are those things. By saying that we believe we are beautiful and therefore we are beautiful. There is a difference. We tend to feel that the tithe is difficult because it actually is something that is measurable. Our Lord says this is the easier part and the other the difficult. Mercy, he declares, is the mark of the redeemed. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. It is important for us, since mercy has so central a position in our Lord's estimation 
of the law, that we understand mercy. The word mercy is sometimes also translated compassion, which is basic to its meaning, and it means to show compassion, to be gracious, and to be pitiful, to pity. Optimeyer, a contemporary scholar, has called attention to the fact that our usual meaning of mercy is humanistic. And we must place mercy in a God-centered context in order to understand its meaning. He writes, and I quote, It has often been pointed out that one Hebrew word for mercy or compassion derives from the stem, meaning womb, and that its original meaning was brotherly or motherly love, that is, the feeling of those born from the same womb or the love of a mother for her child. Thus, God's mercy has been defined in terms of such familial love, and some Old Testament passages support this meaning. In Psalm 103:13, Isaiah 63:15-16, Jeremiah 30, verse 20, God is a father to Israel. In Isaiah 49:15, a mother. In Isaiah 54:4-8, a husband. As such, the Lord welcomes his sinful child or wife back to him with overflowing yearning and loving and love and forgiveness. It is a mistake, however, to define God's mercy only in terms of such familial affection. More of one to view it solely as an inward feeling. God's mercy in the Old Testament, like his faithfulness, his steadfast love, his righteousness, his judgments, represents his continual regard for the covenant which he has established with his chosen people Israel. Not once is God's mercy granted to those outside the covenant relationship. Further, although mercy signifies more than the other terms listed above, an affection or love within the divine person, it is never described in the Old Testament apart from its concrete manifestation in some outward act by God within history. It is, in general, a loving act of God by which he faithfully maintains his covenant relationship with his chosen people." Unquote. Unfortunately, the idea of mercy has moved from this covenant this God-centered aspect to a humanistic one, so that as men interpret mercy today, they confuse it with charity and a love of man. Now the Bible does give a very important place to charity, but it is not the same thing as mercy, and humanism has no place in the Bible. It is very interesting to see how this change in the idea of mercy as well as love have been reflected in our literature. We have a very famous passage on mercy in Shakespeare, and Shakespeare's context is Christian. He wrote in The Merchant of Venice, the quality of mercy is not strange. It droppeth as the gentle rain from heaven upon the place beneath. It is twice blessed. 
because of him that gives and him that takes. Tis mightiest in the mightiest. It becomes the throned monarch better than his crown. His scepter shows the force of temporal power, the attribute to awe and majesty. Wherein doth sit the dread and fear of kings, but mercy is above the sceptered sway. It is enthroned in the heart of kings. It is an attribute to God himself. And earthly power doth then show likest gods when mercy seasons justice. Therefore, though justice be thy plea, consider this, that in the course of justice none of us should see salvation. We do pray for mercy. And that same prayer doth teach us all to render the deeds of mercy. Thus, for Shakespeare, it was mercy that represented character. And mercy was an idea firmly grounded in God and in the nature of God and in God's redemption. When we come to the 19th century, the early 1800s, we find that the picture has greatly changed. One of the best-known poems from that period, Abu Ben Adam by Leigh Hunt, gives us a specifically and deliberately non-Christian interpretation of greatness of character. Now, Shakespeare said it was marked by mercy. Leigh Hunt sees it otherwise. He wrote, Abu Fanatim, may his tribe increase. Awoke one night from a deep dream of peace and saw within the moonlight in his room making it rich and like a lily in bloom, an angel writing in a book of gold. Exceeding peace had made Ben Adam bold. And to the presence in the room he said, What writest thou? The vision raised its head and with a look made of all sweet accord answered, The name of those who love the Lord. And is mine one? said Abu. Nay, not so, replied the angel. Abu spoke more low, but cheerily still, and said, I pray thee then, write me as one that loves his fellow men. The angel wrote and vanished. The next night it came again, and with a great wakening light, and showed the names whom love of God had blessed. And lo, Ben Adam's name led all the rest. Now, I don't know whether you were asked to memorize that in school. I was. And I can realize now, as I look back, why the world has become the way it has when we were asked to memorize that kind of idea. Because, most specifically, what Leigh Hunt here says is that Abu Ben Adam did not love God. His name was not on the list of those who loved God. In fact, his answer was he was doing something else, which in his eyes was obviously far superior. He loved man. And so, God loves him, therefore, the angel reveals, more than anyone else. Because although he doesn't love God, 
He's a lover of man. Now, with generations of school kids being asked to memorize Abu Benada, as was still the case when I went to school, it's no wonder that we have the kind of world we do. Now, as we look backward, however, we find that someone writing just after Shakespeare, Thomas Randolph, wrote, He that's merciful to the bad is cruel to the good. So in Thomas Randolph's day, there was still some common sense. If you showed mercy to a murderer, you were showing no mercy to the victim. If you showed mercy to a thief, you were being merciless to the one robbed. Now, Ochtemeyer, in his definition, said that in the scripture we never find God showing mercy to anyone outside the covenant. This is a very interesting statement because Ochtemeyer is not, in any sense, an orthodox or evangelical Christian. He is an extreme modernist, and he is reporting simply what he believes to be true of scripture. However, we would have to qualify his statement. God does show mercy at the times to those who are outwardly of the covenant, but actually are not. We have one exceptional case in the Bible. God was merciful to Ahab, and Ahab certainly was not redeemed. He was outwardly of the chosen people, actually reprobate, so that God declared that he would be judged and his household would perish. They would no longer rule. And God was merciful to him in that he postponed this judgment until after his death. God's mercy, however, is very definitely in terms of his law. Altemeyer says that it is the structure of the covenant which governs and limits the demands of mercy. And in this he is right. In the Bible, the basic institution is the family. And in the family, mercy in particular predominates. It was a duty according to scripture. Where a family was, there was mercy. Where mercy was lacking, there was no family. And as a result, throughout the scripture, the family tie is represented as a very strong one and as the area of mercy, as an example of what mercy is. And yet, within the family, mercy cannot be antinomian. So that we do have the law in Deuteronomy 21, 18 through 22, whereby the incorrigible delinquent had to be cut off and denounced to the authorities. Then the covenant. People who are members of Christ, members of the covenant in the Old or the New Testament, are regarded as the family of God. 
and therefore the covenant law stipulated a love and mercy towards one another. Leviticus 19, verses 17 and 18 said, Thou shalt not hate thy brother in thine heart. Thou shalt in any wise rebuke thy neighbor and not suffer sin upon him. Thou shalt not avenge nor bear any grudge against the children of thy people, but thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. I am the Lord. Now, of course, the key question here is, who is my neighbor? The rabbis took the reference to be the fellow Israelite. But our Lord also said that we should love even our enemies and be merciful to them on occasion. And he gave the parable of the Good Samaritan as an instance of precisely this kind of mercy. The parable has as its point the lack of mercy in religious leaders. The fact that their point of view was hard-hearted as they bypassed one of their own and showed no mercy towards him. Another aspect of mercy that is emphatically stressed over and over again in scripture is mercy towards widows and orphans. The idea being those who are needy. And we find in Zechariah 7 verses 9 and 10 a summation of the teaching of the law and the prophets. Thus speaketh the Lord of hosts, saying, Execute true judgment, and show mercy and compassions every man to his brother, and oppress not the widow, nor the fatherless, the stranger, nor the poor. And let none of you imagine evil against his brother in your heart. Now another aspect that we must again remind ourselves of is that the English word mercy has a very different connotation than the biblical word. We have seen that in our text, our Lord says that judgment or justice, mercy and faith are matters of the law. The attitude of modern man and of pagan man is that mercy has nothing to do with law. It is antinomian. And as a result, you have a kind of picture of mercy that is best set forth in Kwanan, the Chinese goddess of mercy who in Chinese tales is portrayed as standing outside the gates of paradise because she is so full of mercy she will not enter in until every last living person decides to come in. Now this is total antinomianism. Total antinomianism. This is not the biblical concept. Then again, the English word has picked up the meaning also of pardon. This is not a part of the biblical meaning. We do have 
mercy and forgiveness often occurring together in the Bible. In Numbers 14.18, Deuteronomy 21.8, and Deuteronomy 32.43 in particular, mercy and forgiveness are very closely associated, but not necessarily so. Grace always implies mercy, and redeeming grace means forgiveness. But mercy does not always mean forgiveness. Thus, when God was merciful to Ahab, he did not forgive Ahab. There is a difference. Moreover, not only is mercy in the Bible an aspect of the law closely related with it, so that we are not permitted to be merciful in such a way as to set aside the law and show favor to the wicked as against the godly. Mercy, however, is also an aspect of the redeemed man's nature. It manifests and furthers his blessedness. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Mercy, we are told, is required by God. God's people must show compassion one to another, and all men in their grief and trouble. Moreover, we are told by James in his epistle, chapter 3, verse 17, and by St. Paul in Colossians 3, 12, and 13, that mercy is a part of the wisdom from above, so that mercy is not only associated with the law, but with wisdom. Now, a very interesting aspect of pagan mercy is not only that it is antinomian and that it is associated with pardon always, but it also flows in one direction, from superior to inferior, from above to below. Now, when you have the paganization of society, one of the immediate results is that there is only contempt that flows from below above. No understanding and a merciless attitude. And we have that very much with us today as society is again paganized. In pagan society, the citizen or the individual looks at superiors either with fear and awe and envy or with hatred, never with any mercy or kindliness or compassion. This is a very important fact. And whenever this pagan one-way attitude enters into a society, it does mean that there is either such force above that people below are kept in awe, or else there is such an envy and a hostility from below that society crumbles. 
We have that situation today. Certainly the sins in Washington and Sacramento are very real, but they are a reflection of our own sins as a people. And when there is no feeling of unity, then there is a merciless attitude towards sins at the top, whereas a demand for total mercy for our sins if we are below. This is why various passages of scripture like Hebrews 10.34 represent a totally new note in world history. The Roman Empire had nothing like it. Because Paul writes in gratitude for the fact that the members of the churches had compassion for him when he was in prison. We are in a different world than the Greco-Roman Empire when we read that. The idea of someone who is a thinker, a leader, a philosopher, a man of prominence, having mercy when he is in trouble was unheard of. The only thing he could expect is for people to rejoice because the wheel of fortune would turn now and it would mean someone else, maybe one of them, would have a position at the top. And this is why one of the great pleasures of the Roman circus was precisely being merciless. When a man was the loser in the gladiatorial combats. If he had been the great figure up until that time, the champion of the arena, who had won again and again and had become rich because he had for months and years on end been triumphant in every combat. Now when he was down, and he looked to the crowd for mercy, it would be thumbs down, almost invariably. The pleasure in seeing someone who was high and mighty abased was basic to the pagan character. Mercy never went from above to below. If there were an underdog there, he might get mercy, and it would be thumbs up for him, but not for a man who had been prominent. We see again that pagan attitude. Mercy for the underdog, no mercy for the top man. And yet when Paul writes, it is as though that world had ceased to exist. He, Paul, who had been one of the great men of the empire, a citizen by birth, of one of the great families, so that some of the surviving rabbinical documents indicate that he came from a millionaire family, was now in prison, and people had mercy on him and did everything possible to minister to him 
and he was grateful to them. Because now they had a common life in Christ, love and mercy were flowing in every direction. There was a new world in existence. Only as that new world again extends its boundaries can we have a world that is fit to live in. The old world of the Roman circus is once again very strong all around us. And its attitude is heartless and merciless. It wants everything forgiven like Kuan Yin for the underdog and thumbs down for all else. Such a world can only offer death and destruction because it wants to destroy everything that brings forth progress, excellence, and advancement. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Let us pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we thank thee that thou hast been merciful unto us. And by thy mercy hast created a new humanity through Jesus Christ. Make us ever merciful one to another in terms of thy word, that we may be a people of love and mercy, and might ever rejoice in thee and delight in one another. Grant us this, we beseech thee, in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, first of all, on our lesson. Yes. Uh, I was reading the other day in James uh, where it says, but let patience have a perfect work that you may be perfect and entire one in nothing. James uh, chapter 1, 4 verse. Yes. And uh, I was wondering about that, and it says that uh, patience will have a perfect work, you be perfect and entire, and you'll want nothing. Mm-hmm. And yet, on the other hand, we know that, uh, that there's no excuse for sin. I mean, you know, that God will provide the way out. But yet, on the other side, if we say we have no sin, uh, the truth is not in us. Can you sort of explain how you can be perfect and entire one and nothing and yet at the same time, uh, if you don't, you know, if you don't have sin, that's the sin? Yes. Now, uh, what was the passage again? Uh, James what? James chapter 1, verse 4. Yes. Now, first of all, the word perfect there is not the modern English word which means sinless. But in the Bible, the meaning of perfect is mature. Let patience have her perfect work, her mature work, that she may be perfect, mature, and entire, wanting nothing, lacking nothing. If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God that giveth to all men liberally and upbraideth not, and it shall be given unto him. 
Now, first of all, what this has reference to is our mental and our spiritual equipment. It's not saying that you're not going to need bread or food or some material things. What he is talking about is the trying of your faith worketh patience. Therefore, let patience do her work. The whole point is that spiritually you be equipped and lack nothing spiritually, you see. And the one thing we are promised in Scripture without any qualification, that if we pray for it, we get it, is wisdom. This is perhaps the thing we least of all pray for. But we are assured we can have it. Uh, now let me qualify that. Uh, some years ago a priest said that the one thing that uh, he had never heard in his confessional, I believe, was that people ask for humility or felt that they needed humility or lacked it. So perhaps we should link the two. Humility and wisdom are the things that people seldom ask for. Does that help explain it? Any other questions? Yes? Uh, what is a good uh, argument for those who propose that, for instance, a criminal is, uh, must be sick, must be ill, mm-hmm. Yes, this is a very common argument, and in fact I read a whole book by a Church of England rector, the thesis of which was, of course, that the criminal was sick and particularly deserving of our love and attention. Now the implication of this is that it destroys all responsibility. You cannot have any society which is in any respect civilized if you destroy responsibility. Because if men are not responsible for their actions and are to be forgiven and given special care and treatment as though they had not done it, what you are saying then is that society is responsible and you're going to punish society. And you quickly destroy society because you're requiring the innocent to subsidize those who, from a Christian perspective, are guilty. It constitutes a subsidy. The attitude that it is mental sickness creates mental sickness. Even psychiatrists are beginning to admit now that they no sooner invent a kind of term or mental sickness, and they begin to have all kinds of examples of it. That, as a matter of fact, people are so suggestible that it has been demonstrated that if they go to a psychoanalyst or a psychiatrist with a particular kind of theory, they will begin dreaming very quickly the kind of dreams that are made to order for that psychiatrist or psychoanalyst. And they're not doing this consciously. 
but they are open to suggestion. They are very suggestible. So that if the man is a follower of Jung, the dreams turn out to be ideal dreams for Jungian analysis. If the man is a Freudian, the dreams will be Freudian. Well, before this, they found that there were other examples before Freud and Jung of the same thing. That, uh, well, one of the great men of the last century discovered a very serious kind of mental sickness, hysteria. And the result was that there were hysterical women all over Europe for a generation. It was quite fashionable. And then it went out of style, and the classic symptoms of hysteria began to disappear, and institutions were no longer peopled by hysterical individuals. Well, in recent years, according to Dr. Zaz, who is not a Christian, the myth of mental illness is the title of one of his books. We have fabricated this myth, and the result is that people who cannot make a grade find it a very convenient way of dropping out at society's expense. To test this not too long ago, a couple of researchers did a great deal of work in mental institutions and they very quickly found that it was true. There's a report on their research which is in process of being published in the current psychology today. What they found was this, that by talking to a very large percentage of the inmates in various mental institutions, they found that they rated the various institutions as people rate resort hotels, and that they were regarded in the state institutions uh, as the poor man's resort, that there was a very good game they played, that uh, they tried as much as possible to avoid the psychiatrists on duty and to be in the various therapy groups where they could go all day long from one kind of uh, game to another or uh, go to the movies every evening or go to the various programs and uh, craft shops and occupy themselves all day long. Now, if the psychiatrist or the psychiatric worker in charge of them began to feel they were making rapid recovery and should be discharged, then they would immediately go into a, a tailspin and collapse almost to the point of uh, needing a straitjacket or something, but not quite. They would know the fine line to avoid, and that a very, very large percentage of the people in institutions were there for such reasons, and that they openly regarded it at, as a place to go if you felt the world was too difficult. And they, they have a rating system in terms of which you rate the kind of institutions and where it's best to go and it's too bad if you can't make it into this one because they really have the entertainment there. So there is some dawning awareness now on the world of 
psychiatry and psychology that uh, the idea of mental sickness is not altogether sound. However, they still are not giving up on it because it's been a good field for them and the area of the most rapid growth in the past 10 years and with the likelihood of the greatest growth in the next 10 years is psychology. So that as of now, psychology majors in colleges have perhaps the best chances of placement in good-paying jobs because industry is buying this bit about mental health and setting up in all big plants uh, psychological counseling so that if you think things are going bad, you can make an appointment and get an hour off from work and see the uh, psychologist consult them about your problems and educational institutions are going for it so even though the uh, cynicism is beginning to develop it still works let's hope it won't work too much longer any other questions If no other questions, let's bow our heads for the benediction. And now go in peace. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Ghost bless you and keep you, guide and protect you, this day and always. Amen.